Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Hebrews chapter 8. And as you're flipping, just a couple quick announcements. Um, One, we have some new members. Oh, and kiddos, you guys are dismissed. I forgot about that part. Um, Kiddos, you guys are dismissed. Uh, But we have a few new members, uh, which is probably one of my favorite things uh, that we get to do as a church is welcome new members into our family. So um, Deanna Blythe. Welcome. Um, Caroline Watkins, welcome. Kristen and Robert Hill, welcome. And Beth Stoll, welcome to membership. Um, yeah. So, so if you're interested in what that means or the membership process or what that looks like, um, please come talk to me or any of the elders or deacons. We can answer all those questions for you. Um, there'll be someone at the next step table, which is right over there after this, and you can ask them and, and we can kind of walk you through. But the next, next step class so to pursue membership is in March. Um, so if you're interested in what we believe is a church or membership, I would highly recommend um, going to thebranchsalonica.com clicking on the events and you can look there uh, and sign up for that event. Um, now, now here, here, let me just kind of give a quick preface. Um, th- there's going to be a different tone about this scripture this morning. Um, so I'll just let the cat out of the bag. My goal by the time this morning is over is that everyone will be offended. Are we good? I mean, I just know we have to have this like trigger warning and also like it's coming. Just be ready. All of you, this morning, triggered, all right? And, and so here's where it's going to start. Did you guys know it's Valentine's Day? Men, did you get that figured out? Anybody forget? Anybody bold enough to say, oh, no? Who's, who's pointing fingers? Bryson, did you forget, bro? No? Because karma just threw you under the bus. There's tire marks across your chest right now. Um, so, so here... In, in the, the realm of Valentine's Day, can I tell you my biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves in the world? Can we just be honest together? And I'm telling you, I'm starting offending quickly. I get so angry when little boys flirt with girls without the intention of dating. All right? And I, don't, I mean little boys intentionally. You might be 30 years old, but you're a little boy. If you mess with females' hearts, pursuing them without the idea of actually having a relationship, I will hurt you. That is one of my largest pet peeves. I will forbid you from dating at the branch. And I know men stronger than me. You might not be intimidated, but there's some men in here that might be packing right now that will take care of business. All right, now now here's the threefold idea of it. One... I hate this because that's who I was in high school, right? I mean, this was a, it was a game for me. Um, my wife's in nursery, but she could attest to this. I, it was a hunt. It was a game. I wanted to get girls to the point where they liked me, and then I was over. I won. I was successful. I know looking at me now, you're like, man, that, that never worked, did it? It did. Trust me. It did. So I hate that. The other side of it is I have three daughters, right? So like now I'm just overly protective. Um, I just... If we can just make a pact right now, forget the elders and all the Bible, can we just make a pact right now? If I go to jail for protecting my daughters, y'all won't fire me, right? Are we good? Can we make a Okay. Good, good. I, I like that rule. Uh, but, but here's the reality. So I have three girls. I have done this and I hate it, but it is a mockery to call yourself a man of God and do that. 
So in, this, in the light of Valentine's Day, don't be that guy. Now, I know what you're thinking because some of you are part of family groups and you read through Hebrews 8 this week and, and you're going, what in the world does this have anything to do with Hebrews 8 this morning? And, and here's my tone. Here's my attitude. Here's my outset hypothesis. That we are far too guilty of being the men in the relationship that pursue Jesus without actually wanting Jesus. That what we actually want is the sin that so easily entangles us. So we come to church, we sign up for Bible studies, we do all the Christian things, but we actually have no intention of pursuing Jesus forever. It is the right thing to do. Is it a game for us? It is exciting for us. But we never actually have the intention of laying our lives down for the sake of Jesus Christ. When I stood face to face with my wife at the altar, that was my covenant. When I married, I'm looking at Grant and Cece right now. That was their covenant that they made, that they will sacrificially love one another. They will lay their life down. But what we're going to see this morning in the text is, man, are we playing games with Jesus because we like our sin more? Because here's, here's the two distinguishments that we have to make. Jesus and sin, and a lot of us can be really frustrated with our relationship with Jesus and all the while miss that it is a sin issue, that we prefer sin over Jesus. So it's going to get uncomfortable this morning. I want to press in hard this morning on us, not to be mean or a bully or because I'm going to passively, aggressively... There's no passiveness this morning. I'm going to aggressively, aggressively preach the gospel. But it's for our joy, church. Please hear me. This is for our joy. Good? All right, so Hebrews 8. We're going to read 1 through 13. I'm going to pray for us real quick. And then we're just going to take some time understanding where we are. Hebrews 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in that true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown, that was shown you on the mountain. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them who says, he says, behold, the days of the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one of his neighbors and each of his brothers saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is, all, is ready to vanish away. Now, I know there's a lot there, so let us stop and pray, and then we're just going to dissect this a little bit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can sit, we can study, we can learn about you. And Father, I pray as you press in on us this morning, God, would we respond rightly Would we see you more precious as we leave this place this morning because of the words that you're speaking to us through your holy Bible. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, if you've been with us, Hebrews has this very basic theme that goes throughout, throughout, throughout. That Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better. So it starts with um, trying to convince this house church in Rome that is under a bunch of persecution and things are about to get really bad for them. And so... this author, who, who we have a bunch of theories of who it could be, is writing to them saying, hey, hold fast, don't slip back to your old ways because Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the old covenant. Jesus is greater than all. This is the theme that's been going throughout this entire scripture. But specifically, uh, chapter 7 and now going into verse 8, this is our fourth week in those two books And and what we've seen is that Jesus is better than the high priest. So we see Melchizedek, and and we start to understand the sacrificial system of the law. And and so we keep pushing back. But but can I just be honest with you? It has been dry to preach some of this stuff. And as I'm listening and talking through, it's just kind of like, man, what does Melchizedek have to do? What does the priest have to do? And so so initially my mind was like, okay, it's it's just as simple as this. That, man, we don't understand the old covenant we don't understand the priesthood, that, that there's just this massive gap here that, that has been disconnected. So, so it's okay that this might feel a little dry to us, a little stale, because we, we have no real framework for this text. But you know when something just doesn't sit right? Y'all ever experienced that? It was like, man, that, that can't be it. So, so I kept praying, and I kept considering, I kept thinking, kept praying, considering, thinking, why does this not excite me? Why does this not excite us? Why did the author of Hebrews see it fit to spend two and a half chapters on this theme? What does this mean for us today? And, and so as I started to have this hypothesis at our family group Monday night, we were reading this text and studying this text, and, and some of the conversation that started coming out really resounded into what I had been seeing and thinking and feeling. So, so look with me at verse 12 real quick. Because this is where it kind of came to a head for me. Verse 12. Now, now this is the author quoting Jeremiah 31. So this is him saying, hey, here's the law. Here's the prophet quoting what the new covenant's going to look like. And here we are within this new covenant. Let me remind you that Jeremiah already said this is what's going to happen. And verse 12 is what it is. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, so real quick, the author distinguishes between the old and new covenant. The old covenant, Stephen mentioned last week or preached last week, uh, is a temporary salvation. So you're constantly having to offer gifts and sacrifices to temporarily earn salvation. But the new covenant, Christ's death on the cross, means that our sins are gone forever. Now, let me be frank. Um, and, and let me be gentle, but let me be frank. With what I just said, I get more feedback and laughter and joy from you guys when I quote the office than what I just read. That our sins are gone forever. Now, I, I know I have a little Babacostal in me, right? Like, I like to get fired up. It's the seven in the Enneagram. I just get excited about things. And I know that the branch is, is not that way all the time. I mean, if we have three people raising their hand in worship, something crazy is happening. Revival is breaking out within the gym of Parks and Rec. Like, I, I get it. So I'm not trying to judge all of this stereotypically on how you just responded to what I said. But, but let me ask some questions. When I said that, what did that sentence do to your heart? When I read the words of Jeremiah, that God will be merciful toward our iniquities and that he will remember our sins no more, what did that sentence do in your heart? What joy welled up within you? Did it bring a smile to your face? Did you shake your head in disbelief that God forgave our sins? Did you wonder, did it bring any wonder in a heart that Christ would die for our sins, would remember our sins no more? You see, here's the problem that I think we sit in today. We love Christ, but we love our sin. We understand the beauty of Christ, but we do not understand the weight and the severity of our sin. So we can read this passage that was mind-blowing for the people in Rome at this time. And it can affect us not one iota because we love our sins. So, so here's my main argument this morning. That we don't know, care, or bother with the seriousness of our sin. It's why we find the law boring, the sacrificial system a drain, Leviticus and Deuteronomy a drag to read because we have lost the weight and our seriousness towards sin. That we were just playing games. Now, I, I don't know, I mean, I've been off social media for a while. I don't really watch the news because it's, it's the news. But I don't know if you've been watching or following along what's going on with Ravi Zacharias after he's passed away. And all the egregious sin that's coming out. And, and maybe I could just lay my cards on the table. I've, I've been doing this for 12 years. I know I look blissfully tired of dealing with sin that people don't take serious. I mean, I've sat across the table from a man double my age going, I know I'm cheating on my wife and I don't give an, I can't say it because you'd fire me for that. It seems like a monthly meeting that I'm meeting with some men, some guys, 
that are struggling with pornography, but do not do the first thing to battle that sin. I've seen divorce play out. I've seen sin just destroy lives. I mean, that's kind of my job, right? I have, I have a first row for that kind of destruction. And so to stand before you and just act like sin is no big deal, when I'm the one that you're going to call when the stuff hits the fan, I just can't do that. We cannot pretend like sin is not out to destroy us. We cannot pretend like sin is just this thing that will just go on, it'll be fine. As long as it doesn't affect a lot of things, sin is fine. Don't, Don't worry about it, don't sweat it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of seeing the church fight among itself, not realizing that it's a sin issue. I'm tired of the in-house squabbles that give the church such a bad name in the community at large. And I'm not talking just the branch, I'm talking big seat church here, that we must take sin serious. So, so with that in mind, let's go back to the church in Rome real quick, because I'll be the first to admit, I, I've given the church in Rome a little bit of slack, right? I've thrown some shade at these guys, because just in my mind, when you read this, it's like, man, why in the world would you go back to a sacrificial system? Like, why in the world would you, when you have Christ that forgave all your sins once and for all, forever, it's finished, he meant it, why would you want to go back? Why is this even a deal for the church, for these Hebrews? Why is this a big deal? And I think there's two things that we have to see. One, just imagine this. Your parents work, your grandparents worked, your grandparents' grandparents worked, your grandparents' grandparents' grandparents, like everyone in your lineage has worked to earn money. Now, what if I just snapped my finger and said, you have all the money you need, you don't have to work anymore. I mean, you're going to pull a Ricky Bobby and go, I don't know what to do with my hands. Like that, that's going to feel uncomfortable for us because it's been a routine. It's all we've known. So, so part of this is just a shell shock for the church in Rome. I, I don't know what to mean when you say don't make sacrifices anymore, that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice because all I've known and all my parents have known and parents, 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 parents has known to make sacrifices. This is just what we do. But here's maybe the, the bigger reality. And here's where I think there's a massive disconnect. They were tempted to make sacrifices for their sin because they understood the weight of their sin. That they had a hard time just going, what do you mean Christ paid for it? Like, like I've done some really egregious stuff. I've got to do something to earn. I've got to do something to take care of. I've got to do something to atone for the sin that I've committed because they understood the weight and the severity and the reality of their sin. So it was impossible for them just to go, well, I mean, Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Let's go get lunch. That was not a reality for what they believed and lived because they knew the weight of their sin. Now, now we opened this series. If you want to go ahead and start flipping to Leviticus 4. We opened this series, and by we, I mean Dylan, going back and teaching through Leviticus. I think Stephen preached one of these weeks to understand the sacrificial system, what was going to be relayed to in Hebrews back in Leviticus. And Leviticus 4 is all about the sin offerings. 
And, and I'm just going to read a few verses, but I want you to put something, bookmark this, and, and read this passage when you get home. And spoiler alert, if you're doing the Bible chronologically, you read this yesterday. Not throwing any shade if you're a little bit behind. I am too. But you don't have to read this if you read it yesterday. Leviticus 4, 1 through 12. And I'm just going to read a few verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any of them, If it is an appointed priest who sins, thus bring guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for the sin offering. He shall bring the bull into the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord and lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his fingers into the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in the front of the veil of the sanctuary. And I challenge you to keep reading this because it is, not to sound heretical, oddly specific of what must happen for the atonement of our sins. And, and Dylan did a masterful job. I literally just copied and pasted his points from back in August because, because here's what we see from this text and from the big picture of Leviticus about the requirements for sacrifice for our sins. The, the, the animal goat in this uh, example, the um, bull, must be without blemish. Essentially, the animal had to be perfect. God does not want our scraps or secondhand work. He wants our very best, and he deserves every bit of it. So if you're going to make a sacrifice for your sin, it has to be the best. You have to look it in the eye. The person making the sacrifice had to lay their hand on the animal's head and look it in its eye as you're making the sacrifice. You had to sit in the weight of the consequences of your sin. You had to look this animal in its eyes while you're doing this to him. Because sin is no joke. And you have to understand the consequences of your sin. It's a gruesome thing to do, to be sure. But it's teaching us the way that God views sin. And you had to lay your hands on the sin to transfer your sin into the animal. Substitutionary atonement is what this would be called when Christ comes. That he takes our sin on his shoulders and atones for our sin. Now, now we're starting to see a little bit of what Leviticus is teaching us so that we can understand Hebrews. That this sin that they're dealing with is real and the way they deal with it is real. That they yearly at least understand the weight and severity of their sin. Here's, here's what Al Mohler says. Our greatest problem is sin. Now, can we just stop for a second? It's not politics. It's not America. It's not war. It's not drugs. It's not filling the gap, wealth, any of that. Our greatest problem is sin, for it severs us from the presence of God. Our sin and his holiness are incompatible, yet God promised to reconcile sinful people to himself 
through the mediator who would inaugurate the new covenant. Our greatest problem is sin, but there is a solution for that sin. Romans 3 would put it this way, Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then, are Jews better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What binds all of us in this room together? Our sin. The weight of our sin is what binds us, holds us together. Martin Luther said about the book of Romans that Paul wrote it to magnify sin. That Paul desired for us to see, understand the weight of our sin. So, so let me maybe take a step back. Let me simply give a definition for sin so that we can all be on the same page. Sin may be comprehensively defined as a lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence. But church, here's what we have to see. This is my only point. This is my only argument for the rest of the morning. That when we minimize sin, we minimize Christ. When we minimize the severity and the weight of our sin... We're basically telling Christ, hey, thanks for dying on the cross, but man, you didn't have to do that. Thanks for taking the lashes that almost killed you before you got to the cross. You didn't have to do that. I've got got this figured out. I'm I'm good. So, So when we knowingly or unknowingly minimize the weight and severity of our sin, we're minimizing the effectiveness of Christ on the cross. So, so one man has challenged my thinking on this tremendously. And, and one of the ways I'm going to end the sermon in a few minutes is just read his six points on how to handle sin. But, but he's a Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson who lived from 1620 to 1686. And he has a pretty famous quote that, that a lot of us might have heard, but it's on page 63 of his book, Doctrine of Repentance. And here's what it is. Till sin be bitter, Christ not be sweet. Have we heard this? Till sin be bitter, Christ not be sweet. So, if you have an issue with your relationship with Christ and you're trying to white knuckle it and fix it, church, I'm going to bring you back to your sin. Is your sin bitter? Do we understand the weight, the severity of our sin? And here's what Watson says, and I think it'll be on the screen. Sin is the accursed thing, the most deformed monster Look upon the origin of sin from whence it comes. It fetches its pedigree from hell. He who commits sin is of the devil. Sin is the devil's work. How hateful is it to be doing that which is the special work of the devil. Indeed, that which makes men into devils. Now, intellectually, we would all agree to that definition, that explanation of sin. But do we feel the weight of that explanation and definition of sin? I mean, when, when is the last time, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me just ask this question. When is, when is the last time you just sat and mourned the weight of your sin? When was the last time your sin was just a reality for you? 
Because here, here's what we have to see. We, we've understood sin in Rome. We've understand sin from the book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system. But can we talk just for a minute about sin in us? In our culture, in our day, the sin in us, how we view it, how we think about it, how we understand it, how we live it out. And here's where we have to start, because I don't know, and, and maybe there's some assumptions here, I don't know that we understand the full nature of sin in us, because there's two, there's two different camps here, right? So you have this camp over here that's total depravity, and you have this camp over here that's more the semi-Pelagian, free will kind of thought. So, so really quickly, let me kind of separate the two. Total depravity is just preaching Ephesians, for you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. Now, now, really quickly, what can a dead man choose? Nothing. So the doctrine of total depravity would just teach us that because sin entered in through Adam and, and the original sin in the garden, that sin has accursed all of us. That that's just who we are now. We are all depraved. There's nothing that we can do apart from Christ to choose not sinning. It's just who we are. It's what we do. But this other side, who I would go ahead and just all card the table, I'm over here. This other side would say, no, no, there's, there's enough good in you that you can choose to follow Christ, that you can choose to defeat your sin, that you can choose to, to make things right on your own power, on your own will, that sin isn't that big of a deal. You can fix the issue. But again, if that's the reality, then doesn't that rob what Christ did on the cross? That if there's enough in us to choose to not sin, then why did Christ have to die? So we're going to stand over here because we already read Romans. No, not one. No one is good. Ephesians is pretty clear. For we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. And Paul hits it again in Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, they were made sinners. By Adam's sin, we were all made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that many will be made righteous. So because of the sins of Adam, we were all accursed but because the righteousness of Christ, we can now be made right through him. So we just have to really quickly distinguish this one massive point. The assertion of original sin makes the point that we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. That's who we are, that's what we do. We can do no other apart from Christ. That the doctrine of original sin to total depravity is who we are. Now, let me just take a step back real quick. Because this is, if, if you study Reformed theology, you understand Calvinism. This is the very first point of Calvinism. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity. This is what we believe. But, but I told you I'm here to offend, so let me offend. To the young Calvinists in the room, you cannot be prideful and understand depravity in the same sentence. So stop talking. Whew, sorry, I'm getting mad. Because you're ruining the sake of name of Jesus Christ when you assume that you can be prideful and still carry this doctrine of total depravity. You can't. So stop your talking till you humble yourself. Because you're ruining the name of Christ. Stop it. Total depravity teaches us that we can do nothing apart from Christ. So if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the power work of Christ, not in some dead guy's doctrine and theology. So until you can sit in the weight of this, let me stop. I'm excited that you're excited about theology. 
I'm excited that you're excited about doctrine. But I sat face to face with a man that was inches away from pursuing Christ with the rest of his life and said, if it wasn't for this Calvinist, I would be a Christian right now. And that fires me up. Stop it. Sit in the weight of your sin before you start talking theology you don't understand. Do I make myself clear? Now that was like, to 95% of you in this room, that meant nothing to you. But to the other five, stop. And I'm gripping this pulpit because I want to throw hands right now. Because we don't understand depravity. If we truly understand that we are in, dead to our sin, dead to our trespass, that there's nothing we can do, then there should be no pride in us. We should all operate in humility. So, so here's what Kent Hughes says about this. The root sin of pride and enmity against God, the spirit seen in Adam's first transgression and sinful acts always have behind them thoughts, motives, and desires that one way or another expresses the willful opposition of the fallen heart to God's claims on our lives. The root of sin is pride. So we can get lofty about our theology, and please hear me, I'm there. Reformed, five points, I'm there. But we're destroying what Christ has done on the cross. So first we have to understand the weight, the depravity of our sin, that's who we are. Sin is who we are because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin is who we are, it's what we do. But the second thing I think that we don't understand, we don't see about sin, is we don't understand what it takes to forgive. We just don't understand the weight of what forgiveness actually looks like. And, and I'll put it this way, because I have four kids and I was trying to be like, oh, like preachery and like, I'm going to teach my kids some Bible and an actual cool lesson. So one of my kids sinned, right? They were transgressed. They sinned against the other. And I said, all right, everyone come in this room. So they came and like, yes, dad, I'm going to sit right here and be completely obedient because you've raised me to fear God and trust me you. And so father, to have your way, that's not what they said. It was like, sit down and shut up. We're going to have a talk. So as they're sitting, I said, all right, so, so kid number one, I would say Auburn sinned, but she's just perfect. So, but I won't throw out the kid that actually, actually sinned. Um, but if you watch my kids, it's pretty easy to spot who I was probably talking to. So I'm having this conversation. Okay, listen, uh, the child number, I can't even number because you would know, child sinned, right? So here's what we can do. Uh, I'm not going to punish the child that sinned. I'm actually going to punish this one. Is that fair? Are we okay with these terms? Because daddy is a just dad. I can't just act like that sin didn't happen. But what I can do is I can take the sin, the guilt from you, and I can actually put it on your sibling. So I'm trying to teach them what true forgiveness looks like, what Christ did for us, but it backfired when they said, okay, I'm out. Punish them sounds great to me. But isn't that us? I mean, we think about sin, aren't we like, okay, yeah, punish Christ. As long as I don't have to deal with the consequences, I'm good. And we get up and run out and go about our lives like nothing ever happened. Because we don't really understand the weight of what forgiveness means, what it looks like. Because forgiveness costs something. The, the sin that we commit doesn't just dissipate and go away. It costs something. And is deadly. It was deadly. We, under, we have to understand that. 
The next thing that I think, and this is really a cultural piece, and, and over the last really maybe year, two years, this has become a real reality within the church, but, but we have let maybe this, this moral revolution redefine sin for us. And, and here's what I mean. Uh, my, my parents' generation, here's this, the conversation that would happen around sin, right? Like, I know what I did was sinful, I just don't care. Right, so like, like that was my parents' generation. If they were going to walk into sin, it was that kind of mantra. I know what I'm doing is sinful. I know the good book. I know the church hates this. I'm just going to do it. I, I know you guys disagree with me. That's fine. I know it's a sin, but I'm going to keep on sinning. Right, like that was my parents' generation. That was the, under, the mi- mindset that they lived in. But more my generation, we started passively asking, but like, is this actually sin? Like, is this actually wrong? Like, why don't you just do you and I'll do me? We could just kind of coexist. So, so sin, that moral truth started moving from this real objective truth to more this slide of subjectivity. I mean, if, if, my, if my actions, we wouldn't even call them sin anymore. If my actions, if my behavior doesn't affect you, then, then let's just leave each other alone. Everything's fine. Let's just go smoke something and enjoy each other's company. I don't know where that came from, sorry. But now we've slid into maybe this college generation that this truth that maybe in my generation is more subjective, you do you, I'll do me, everything's fine. Now we've slid into this cancel culture where if you disagree with my subjective truth, I'll just have you canceled. If you disagree with what my truth is for me, you're the bigot. You're the wrong one. You can't tell me what to do. Now, just please hear me, because I know we can share memes all day long and joke about this, but we're foolish if we don't think that this has subtly slid into the way that we, as a church, view sin. We're, we're foolish if we don't think that, that we're maybe not in my kind of generation of thought that, that sin is really just subjective. Like, if, if I can do this, if I can operate in this sin, and no one knows it, and it affects no one, man, what's the harm in that? Because we've misunderstood that my sin is not against you. My sin is against God. That God's holy law is perfect and right. And if he says this is sin, it doesn't matter who it affects or how it affects, that sin stands. So we have to understand that, that even the way the culture, the moral revolution has started affecting Jade, the way that we see sin. So now we're minimizing Christ's work on the cross because we're taking our cues from culture? And really quickly, let me maybe throw out one more option for us just to see. When we talk the idea of sin, there's really two extremes here. On one side, you have this idea called legalism. Now, most of us, I've heard a lot of your stories, have grown up in more of a legalistic environment, right? Where you can't do this, it's all of rules, it's no relationship, follow this and this and this rule. And on the far other end is antinomianism. So like, man, let's just keep sinning. Jesus forgave us, let's just go party, let's have fun. The the word actually literally means against or anti the law. So so Christ has forgiven us, so like, man, let's just party on, Garth. Forget the law, let's go big. So, So here's these two extremes. Legalism, man, we can't do anything. Salvation is up to us, let's white knuckle this, wear long dresses, don't ever play cards, don't play poker. If you use a cuss word, you're going to hell, right? Like that is the environment that we grew up in. For a lot of us. But even there, salvation is up to us. Follow the rules and you will be good. 
the other end of the spectrum. Man, do whatever you want. Sin is, or, uh, grace is free. Just keep on sinning so that grace may abound. Even though Paul said, by no means do you do that. But, but here's where I think we actually are. I think some of us might struggle over here. Some of us might struggle over here. There, there is some legalism that is good, if that makes any sense. Right? Like, like there's nowhere in Scripture that God forbids me to uh, be alone with a female. Nowhere in Scripture that that happens. But I'm going to be pretty legalistic on that. Because that, no good is ever going to come from that. No, no, that's just an easy way for me to go. Nope. I cannot have an affair if I'm not alone with another woman that's not my wife. But yeah, I'll be legalistic on that. I also cannot have an affair if I look like this. That's plan B. Get married, let yourself go. Affair proof. That one's for free. Do with it what you want. But here's where I think the actual reality is. I think we're somewhere in the middle. And I would argue because of the algorithms that rule our world on social media and the polarization that's happening in our country through the virtue signaling, the uproar with no action, here's a proper response of where we actually are. We will knowingly, willingly, and joyfully point our fingers at other people's sins so that they don't look at ours. I think that's where we are. I think the devil is using this trick, this polarization trick, for us to point the fingers at everyone else so that we don't actually focus on the sin of our hearts. So we're going to get obsessed with this political story. We're going to get obsessed with this celebrity. They did this. We're going to get obsessed with this family. How dare they ever do that? We're going to get obsessed with this situation. And as long as we keep our minds busy and occupied about everyone else's sin, we don't actually have to deal with the weight of our own sin. I read this quote a couple months ago, and it just rocked my world. Elise Fitzpatrick said this, I wish I hated my own sin as much as I hate everyone else's. I think that's where we are. If we would just be as concerned about our sin as we are about everyone else's, I think our relationship with Christ would become so sweet because our sin would become so bitter. So, so, and I'll make this quick as we start to close. Thomas Watson, in his book, Doctrine of Repentance, uh, gives six ways for us to understand the true hatred of our sin. And here's what he says. There's no better sign of true repentance than a holy antipathy, which is a deep-seated feeling of dislike or aversion against sin. Sound repentance begins in love to God and ends in the hatred of sin. So, so here's just six, real quickly, six points that he makes about sin. Uh, first, the sight of sin matters. A man f- must first recognize and consider what sin is and know the plague of his heart before he can duly be humbled for it. The eye is made both for seeing and weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. So we must understand the law of God so that we can see our sin. And what Jeremiah taught us is that the law is placed on our hearts. We know what sin is. We, we understand the reality, though, is that we get often far too callous about what sin is. And, and we've justified long enough that sin is not a big deal. The second thing, after we see sin, we must have sorrow for sin. He that can believe without doubting suspect his faith. So if you can believe in Christ without ever having a moment of doubt, Watson is saying, I'm going to be suspect of your faith, but he can repent without sorrow, suspect his repentance. So once we see our sin, we must have a true sorrow for our sin. And from that sorrow, Watson says, we must confess it. 
We must confess our sin. Confession must be voluntary, it must be sincere, and it must be true. And it must be final. We must confess with the intent of never pursuing that sin again. Sorry, Dad, I won't won't do that again knowing full well I'm going to do that next week is not true confession. The next one, and and, and please hear me on this because this one can get a little, uh, little wonky. That's North Georgia redneck for weird. Shame for sin. So once we see it, once we have sorrow, once we confess it, we must have shame for our sin. Watson says, blushing is the color of virtue. Here's what he means by that. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. And we see this story with the prodigal son. I mean, the entire way the prodigal son is coming back to the father, he's constantly going, I don't, I don't deserve to be your son. I don't deserve to be your son. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I don't deserve to be your son. There is a level when we understand the weight of our sin, there's a level of shame that comes with that. But that shame isn't to accurse you. That shame is to draw you closer to Christ. If we get a hold of this one, Satan will use this to accurse you, but that's not the reality of what's happening. From the shame, we must have hatred for sin. Once we see the true destruction of it, we must have hatred for sin. Sound repentance begins in the love of God and ends with the hatred of sin. And Watson uses this example of why in the world, if we had something that, that we sin constantly, we know this is going to end poorly, let's go do it again. We know this is going to harm us, let's go do it again. We know this is going to cause separation between my spouse and between God. And between my, let's go do it again. We know that this is, let's go do it again. He said, no, 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 true repentance, understanding of sin will lead to a hatred of sin, which the final step will be turning from our sin, this idea of repentance. True repentance, as Watson says, like nitrate acid, eats the iron chains of sin. Therefore, weeping and turning are put together. The turn from sin is called forsaking sin, and it's called repentance. So as we go through these steps, understanding the weight and the severity of our sin, the end result is hatred and a turning from that sin. So that, and this is what I hope we don't miss, so that Christ will be sweet. So that we can read the text together where Christ says he's not going to hold us responsible for our sin no more. And it fires us up because we understand the weight and consequences of our sin. And now we understand what the weight of forgiveness is. Now, now here, I'll, I'll end with this. This is just, this blew my mind. So we start to understand, okay, what, what did the church in Rome actually do? Right? Like, did they apply all that happened in the book of Hebrews? Did they understand it? Did they take the weight and the consequences of their sin and the beautiful forgiveness through Christ's work on the cross for their sins? And did they combine these things together? Because we understand that Hebrews is written around 60 AD, um, 65 AD, Nero comes in, bro is using Christians for light posts. He's dipping them in oil, putting them on top of a post, setting them on fire. 70 AD, Jerusalem falls, and this next, the end of that first century is incredibly difficult for the church in Rome. And persecution knows no bounds, stealing, theft, murder, arrest, all of this for the church and the Christians in Rome. Now, if we don't understand sin, if we don't understand how sweet Christ is, bro, we're out. 
I thought Christianity was supposed to be good for us, and now we're getting killed for it, so, man, I'm out of here. But here's what happened. Here's what happened to the church in Rome. So we, we see in the 125 AD, right? So 60 AD, 125 AD, about 65 years later, Christianity within Rome is spreading like wildfire. And then Caesar is furious about it. He just does not understand how in the world, after all this has happened to the church in Rome, are they still exploding? So he sent this, basically this spy to go in and say, okay, find out what is happening within the church. And so uh, this spy, he's a philosopher, Aristotle, writes back in this thing called the Apology of Aristides. I strongly encourage you to read all of this because I'm just going to give you quotes. But here's a few quotes about what he said, even though the church was in massive persecution, had been for 60 plus years. Here's what he wrote back to Caesar about the church in Rome. But the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth and as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to the truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, and, whom, and from whom are all things. And their oppressors they appease and make them their friends. So they're making friends with the Romans that are murdering them. The oppressors they appease and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their home and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there's any among them that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Every morning and every hour, they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness towards them. For their food and their drink, they offer thanksgivings to him. And since they know the loving kindness of God towards them, behold, for their sake, the glorious things which are in the world's flow, worlds flow forth to view. And verily, this is a new people. There's something divine in the midst of them. Persecution, suffering, hardships. This is a new people. There is something divine among them. So what is the truth? What is the reality for the church in Rome? That they understood the weight of their sin and therefore understand the power of Christ on the cross. That is the only thing. That is the only difference for them. That they survived all the persecution, all the hardships, all the murders, all the deaths, because their sin was bitter and Christ became sweet. So, th so that's it, church. Is your sin bitter? Are we playing games with the sin that is among us? Oswald Chambers says it this way Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life is when he says that and means it. So church, as we end this morning, let me just ask you a question. Do you understand the weight of your sin? Has your sin become bitter? And this is not a drive-by shooting. This is not, hey, you should feel bad about yourself. Let me introduce a building campaign and if you want to give to the church, we'll forgive you. That's not what this is. The motivation is what Thomas Watson said, that I want Christ to be sweet in all of our lives. 
that I want us to understand the true weight of our sins so that we can understand the true atoning work of Christ on the cross. But I'm afraid that we're just playing games with our sin. I'm afraid that we don't understand the weight of our sin and therefore Christ will never be sweet. So let's pray. Father, would you would you speak to us right now in this moment, Father? Spirit, would you bring to mind our sin? Do we understand the weight of it? Or have we been minimizing it for our entire lives? When sin is brought up, do we constantly defer to other people? Well, yeah, but at least I'm not like that guy. At least I haven't sinned like that girl. Is that the posture of our sin? Do we have a tendency to run towards legalism, to make a bunch of rules in our lives so therefore we do not sin and try to do this all on our own power? Does our sin grieve us? Does it bother us when we sin? And when we do, what do we do? Where do we run? Do we run to white-knuckle efforts? Or do we run to you, the author and perfecter of our faith? Do we run to you that when, when you died on the cross, you covered all of our sins, past, present, future, that you know and you still died, that you came into the world to save sinners like us? Do, do we get that? Do we sense the weight of that that when we think about what you accomplished for us on the cross does it mean anything to us or is this just another statement that carries no weight no power Father we want you to be sweet We don't want the cross to be just another thing. We want it to be everything. We want to utter the words of Paul that I've forgotten all but Christ and Christ crucified. That, That is the end for us. That is all that we know is that you came into the world to die for us, to rescue us from our sin because we could not do any other. And we want to freely lay our sin at the foot of the cross We want to freely know that we are loved and accepted, that we can bring our sin. We don't have to solve any issues by ourselves, but we bring them and confess them and lay them at the foot of the cross. Father, would you help us with that? Would we not let the world define sin, but would we see it biblically from you? Would our sin become bitter? And would you become sweet? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your love, for your forgiveness, for your grace. When we screw it up on the daily, Father, you still pursue love and forgive. It's your name we pray. Amen.